From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. Father John Tregilio is on an airplane, making his way to Birmingham, Alabama, of all places, to do a little TV taping this week, so he's unable to join us, but fear not. I have dug deep into the Rolodex to find an appropriate substitute host, uh, and this particular substitute host uh, is best known for being an alumnus of that basketball school in Tuscaloosa, the University <laughs> of Alabama, Mr. John Martinoni. How are you? Roll Tide. Do- <laughs> doing all right, Jack. How about yourself? How about that How about that Crimson Tide basketball I mean, team? My two word. number one teams taken down in, what, a week? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's... I don't think that's ever happened before in our in our program. I don't history. know if it's happened in anybody's well, program. That's, quite that's frankly. true. That's true. <laughs> that's pretty remarkable. So we have an email here to start the program, and I'll only need one. Um, he he has he has emailed on the right day for the right program because this is a question that, for my money, and I will tell anybody who cares to listen, you answer as well as anybody I have ever heard answer this question. And Tim writes in and says, can you give me a good biblical explanation for purgatory? I've I've never had that question before. (laughs) I thought thought you were just going to say, yes. Yes, I can. (laughs) Next. Sure, and that was Tim? Tim. Yes, that's right. Uh, Yes, Tim, absolutely. Uh, You have 12 minutes, go. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Now, the word purgatory, as you have probably been told, and as many Catholics have been told, is not found in the Bible, which is the um, excuse that many Protestants, not all, but many Protestants use to say, well, purgatory is not a biblical concept, therefore you shouldn't believe in it as a Catholic or any, anybody else, as a Christian. Yet, it is in the Bible, not directly, but very much indirectly, and actually, the, the principles that, that I'm going to expound here are directly related to purgatory. So you can say, again, the, the word is not found in there, but the concept most definitely is found in there. And let's, let's start in the Old Testament. 
to give you a biblical background or, or biblical um, case for purgatory. Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 to 18. Here we have the prophet Nathan coming to David, the king, after David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and also then essentially having Bathsheba's husband killed in battle, so allowing him to be killed in battle. So he's an adulterer and a murderer. Nathan comes to David, tells him a story. David realizes he's talking about that Nathan is talking about him, David, and he repents. He says, I'm sorry for what I've done. I repent before the Lord, etc. Nathan tells him, the Lord has put away your sin. In other words, you've been forgiven. However, Nathan says, because of this thing that you have done, adultery and murder, the child that is born to you, uh, the child that he's going to have with Bathsheba, shall die. So, Catholic biblical principle number one on purgatory, there is the potential for punishment of sin even after the sin has been forgiven. Punishment due to sin even after the sin has been forgiven. Again, that's 2 Samuel 12, verses 13, 18. Then we move to Revelation 21, 27. And in Revelation there, it says that nothing unclean will enter the new Jerusalem. In other words, nothing unclean, nothing with the stain of sin will enter the new Jerusalem, which is heaven. So Catholic biblical principle on purgatory number two, nothing with the stain of sin will enter heaven directly from Scripture. Number three, the third verse I go to, is Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23. And it talks about, it says, you have come to the heavenly Mount Zion, uh, to a gathering of festal angels, to the God who is God over all, and to the gathering of, of souls, the souls of the just that have been made perfect. The souls of the just made perfect. Well, souls that are in heaven, and they've been made perfect. So there's Catholic principle, biblical principle on purgatory number three is there is some process by which the souls of the just, or as Catholics, we would say the souls of those who die in a state of, uh, of sin, state of, uh, of grace, uh, are made perfect. There's some process by which souls are made perfect. So that's Catholic biblical principle on purgatory number three. Catholic biblical principle number four on purgatory comes from 1 Corinthians 3, verses, you could say 10 to 15, but more specifically 13 to 15. And in there it talks about Jesus being the foundation upon which a person's works are built. And it says if you've done works of of gold, silver, precious jewels, and everything, great. You're, you're in like flint. But if you've done works of, of straw, hay, and stubble, you could suffer loss on the day of judgment, you're, the day of your personal judgment. In other words, the day you die, the day you're personally judged, you're, you go somewhere where you could suffer loss, where your works are tested, and you could suffer loss, it says, as through fire, yet still be saved. So you have to ask the question, where is it a person can go after they die where their works are tested and they could possibly suffer loss as through fire, yet still be saved? Is it hell? Well, yeah, in hell you suffer loss as through fire, most definitely. But 
You don't ever get out of hell, so you can't be saved. So it's not hell. Is it heaven? Well, no, you don't suffer loss as through fire in heaven. You're, you're face-to-face with God. You're, you're happy. You're joyful. It's an unbelievable experience. You know, all the tears will be dried up. So, no, you don't suffer loss as through fire in heaven. So there must be some other place, or some would say state of being, other than heaven or hell where a person can go after they die to suffer loss as through fire. So that's, again, Catholic biblical principle number four on purgatory. So let's put them all together. There is the possibility of punishment due to sin even after the sin's been forgiven. Nothing but the stain of sin will enter heaven. There is some process by which the souls of the just are made perfect. And there is some place or state of being other than heaven or hell where someone can go after they die to, have, to uh, suffer loss as through fire, yet still be saved. You put all those together, and you call that whatever you want. We Catholics call that purgatory. And the nice thing about the teaching uh, of purgatory, um, we should aim to go straight to heaven. We should aim to live out our purgatory on earth and to, to live lives of heroic virtue in this life. But should we find ourselves in purgatory? We're in. We're in, yes. And purgatory, you suffer in purgatory. You most definitely suffer, but you have hope in purgatory. So the suffering is not the same as the suffering of the damned in hell who suffer tremendously, but they have no hope. They will never get out. So you suffer in purgatory, but you know that eventually you will be face-to-face with God Almighty, your Creator. Should we pray for those folks? We should. You go ahead. Why? Well, um, why? Because our prayers, our offering of, of uh, masses, our, our, our offering of our, our works and joys and sufferings and, and so forth, um, can our, our indulgences that we, we uh, are, are, I guess we earn, so can help lessen the suffering and get the souls out of purgatory quicker more quickly. So yes, we do indeed need to suffer and offer sacrifice on behalf of the souls in purgatory. And they can pray for you too, so it's just a good idea. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday. It's Old Home Week with John Martinoni sitting in for Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. We've got a great new item from EWTN's religious catalog. It's a Queen of Angels gallery-wrapped canvas. It's five and a half inches by eight and a half inches. And Our Lady of Angels gallery-wrapped canvas by artist William A. Bougereau is a great way to share and increase devotion to Mary as Queen of Heaven and Earth. This image depicts Mary as Queen presenting the infant Jesus to a choir of angels. This method creates an impressive visual display with a faux 3D effect. 
as the image continues all uh, around all visible sides of the mounting. Each canvas hangs with a wire in the back and has an attractive satin matte finish. This piece is made in the United States exclusively for EWTN. And it's available right now at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Online orders of $75 or more. Uh, free shipping right now. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. And if you find yourself looking for a way to get up to $75 for that free shipping, might I suggest Blue Collar Apologetics by John Martinoni. Both the book and the DVD of the series. Highly recommend. Uh, again, that's EWTN's religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN this third week of Advent. 833-288-3986. Um, Sarah would like to know, what are the best... <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> it's almost like it's almost like your wife changed her name to Sarah or, or something for this question. What are the best Bible verses to defend becoming Catholic? The have best... Ever, have you ever gone down that road before? Actually, the <laughs> best Bible verses to defend someone becoming Catholic... As in, um, well, do you, uh, do you think she's going for specific things about specific doctrines, or what do you think would be the? I mean, that's that's my guess. Okay, she's, she's probably she's probably overwhelmed by some of her evangelical acquaintances. That right, would be my guess. Right. Okay. Well, first thing I would say is um, not necessarily a verse, but just the fact I would ask somebody and say, "Okay, look." When, how long ago did Jesus live? And, and your, your evangelical Baptist friend, whoever, will say uh, um, 2,000 years ago. And then you ask them, did Jesus start a church? And they'll say, well, yeah. And you can go to Matthew 16, verse 19. says, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Not churches, but church. One, singular. And don't don't get into whether it's Peter is the rock that the church will be built on or anything right now. I'm, I'm just going for the fact that he, he established a church. And you say, okay, he lived 2,000 years ago. He established a church. How old should the church Jesus founded be? This is something I've used with my kids, every one of them, when they turn 10. Okay, I ask them this question, and with a little help, you know, they— Figured out, okay, Jesus 2,000 years ago, yeah, he established a church. And then when I ask them, how old should the church Jesus started be, they look at me like, is this a trick question? <laughs> okay, and they're 10 years old. And they go, 2,000 years? Say, yes, exactly. So then you can tell your friends, whoever's asking you about, you know, what's a good reason to become Catholic, you can say, well, there is one church that is 2,000 years old that can trace its founding directly back to Peter and the apostles and thus to Jesus Christ through Peter and the apostles. I mean, it's historical fact that the Catholic Church was founded 2,000 years ago. So, um, so that's, that's number one. So Matthew uh, 16, 19 is, is a verse that you can use to... Uh, uh, say, yes, this is a good reason why someone should become Catholic. The fact that uh, Mary, 
you know, let's go to Mary in, in Luke chapter 1. And the, the high uh, honor that God does to Mary by, you know, the, the angel from God says, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And, ble- and, you know, and then Elizabeth comes in later and says, Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Uh, and and uh, um, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me, Elizabeth says, as she's filled with the Holy Spirit. So God gave Mary an honor that had never before been seen, never again will be seen, the honor of carrying his son for nine months in her womb and being his mother for all of eternity. You know, so, and Catholics honor Mary. We, we can't come close to honoring as much as her as much as God did, but we honor her as much as we can as, you know, the commandments say, honor thy father and thy mother. So those two verses are, are, are well, the one verse from Matthew 16 and then the, the several verses from Luke about, about Mary and the angel and Elizabeth. Um, you know, what else? The Eucharist, John 6. You know, John six fifty one, Jesus says, the, I want to give you this bread to eat. And what bread is it that he wants to give you to eat? Is it some symbolic bread, a, a piece of cracker? or No, he says, and the bread which I shall give you to eat is my flesh. Okay, great. His symbolic flesh? Well, obviously, it's, it's his symbolic flesh, right? No, he says the flesh that I will give for the life of the world. Think about that. When did he give his flesh for the life of the world? On the cross. So, if the flesh on the cross is real, then the bread that he wants us to eat is the flesh that he will give for the life of the world, which is what he gave on the cross, which was his real flesh. And that's what we eat in the Eucharist. And it goes on in John 6, 52, 3, 4, 5. Jesus says four or five times, my body is real food, my blood is real drink, eat my flesh, drink my blood. If you eat my flesh, you will have eternal life. I will raise you up on the last day. In the Catholic Church, we eat the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. No symbol, the real thing. So those verses are just a few that I would say are, are reason enough to, uh, to join the Catholic Church. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you and just getting started on an open line Monday. Pick up the phone and give us a call with your question. 833-288-3986. Alan says, The writers of James and Hebrews seem to have different beliefs about faith and works. Do they disagree on how salvation is obtained? Uh, No. And I'd have to, you said that was Alan? Yes. Yeah, I'd have to look at exactly the reasoning of Alan when he says they seem to have different takes on, on salvation. I don't see that at all. Uh, James talks about faith and works. In fact, one could almost say James talks about a works salvation. You know, in James 2.24, he says, uh, do you not know that we are saved by works and not by faith alone? So it almost seems like, oh, it's works that save you. No, it's faith and works. It's not faith alone. It's faith and 
works. Hebrews, same thing. Hebrews says without faith cannot please God. But if you go through, for example, well, let me get there real quick just to give some of the um, specifics. You know, in, in, in Hebrews 11, it's going through the uh, uh, hall of, of saints from the uh, Old Testament and, you know, talking about David and Abraham and, and, and so forth and the things that they did. They had faith, so they did. They had faith, so they did. They had, so it's faith and works. It's not faith or works. It's not faith alone. It's not works alone. It's faith and works all by the grace of God. You know, that's the thing. Catholic and Protestant alike believe we are saved by God's grace alone. The difference is that the Protestant believes the only response necessary is a response of faith. Not all Protestants, but most. The Catholic believes the response necessary is what the Scripture tells us, a response of faith and works. Faith, or as it says in uh, uh, Galatians 5, 6, neither, circumcision, neither uncircumcision or circumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. So faith and works, and it's the same in James, it's the same in Hebrews, it's the same in the Gospels, it's the same in all the other letters of the New Testament. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We're going to head to Mark in Cincinnati, Ohio. He is listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Mark, you're on with John Martinoni. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have uh, some products and friends that, um, and I know you guys talked about this in the past, um, as far as, uh, you know, the dead, praying for the dead, uh, souls of the faith departed, plus uh, the fact that uh ones that are in purgatory, you know, um, if you ask for prayers from them, like you just mentioned a little earlier, um, do you have uh, that if I can write it down this time? Okay, you, you, you cut out there for a second. Do, do, you, do you have what that you can write down? The, just the, um, like the Bible verses so that I can share it with my Protestant oh, okay. about about the dead. Um being able to pray for their soul after they've been, you know, passed on. Well, and then, because he says, once they're dead, you can't pray for them anymore. You know, there's, there's no sense in that. Once, where does it say that in the Bible? <laughs> well, it, it says, number one, you ask them, in general, talk about the, the body of Christ, the communion of saints, and, and uh, put it in, in terms of or the body of Christ, which is what the communion of saints is all about. So you have members of the body of Christ on earth and you have members of the body of Christ in heaven because you can tell them, you know, hey, death doesn't separate us from the love of Christ. It says that in Romans. I think that's what, Romans uh, 8, 10, somewhere in there. Um, so in heaven, they're members of the body of Christ. On earth, we're members of the body of Christ. Well, if people are in purgatory and, you know, tell them just, just for the sake of argument, let's say purgatory exists, and there are people there, well, they're heading to heaven, so yes, they're members of the body of Christ. So just as it's okay for members of the body of Christ on earth to pray for one another, just so it's okay for members of the body of Christ on earth to pray for those who are in purgatory, who need our prayers, members of the body of Christ in heaven don't, but the members of the body of Christ in heaven can also pray for those 
who are not yet in heaven who are members of the body of Christ, or, or even those not members of the body of Christ, but in particular, those members of the body of Christ. So uh, put it in context of, of the body of Christ. Then you can also, well, I guess we need to continue this in a moment. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Gannett, Alejandro, and Rose, and we've got plenty of time for your calls as well. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with John Martinoni filling in for Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. We're talking with Mark in Cincinnati, Ohio, who has some acquaintances that are telling him, quit praying for dead people. When they're dead, they're dead. Yeah, and here's the thing. Uh, What I'm going to get at more than praying for the souls in purgatory, because there really isn't anything in the Bible that they have— 66 books that says hey you can pray for the souls in purgatory however in second maccabees which is one of the books in the old testament that we have in the catholic bible the original bible that they don't have it says it is a good and holy thing to pray for those who have died to pray for those who have gone beyond and to offer sacrifice for them but again that's second uh, uh maccabees i think that's chapter 12 so you can look at that, and they can say, well, that's Second Maccabees. It's not Scripture. You can say, but this is what the Jews believed. And Jesus being a Jew, he then would have believed this as well. It's it just giving you a historic example of what they would do. Now, in terms of people beyond the pale not knowing what's going on, and, hey, they're dead, and that's it. Well, no, not, not so fast. Revelation uh, chapter 6 Verse 9, it's talking about when the fifth seal is open. I saw under the altar, and this is an altar in heaven, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and martyrs for the faith and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? In other words, they knew what was going on on the earth. They knew that they had not yet been avenged by by the Lord God. So it's not the fact that, hey, they're dead, they're dead, and that's it. You know, and you have other places in the, in the New Testament, the, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus and the rich man and, and Abraham all knew what was going on on earth. The, 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 the rich man knew that his brothers, you know, he said, hey, send somebody back to them, Father Abraham, so that they don't end up in this same place that I do. He knew they had not repented and believed. So, you know, it's not that you die, you're dead, that's it, end of story. No, Scripture doesn't say that. So, but one thing I'm going to tell you, go to my website. It's BibleChristianSociety.com, and I've got a talk there. Uh, You can get it to MP3 download. It's called The Communion of Saints. And you can get it on CD if you still have a CD player and you're, you know, like me, uh, old-fashioned in that regard. But uh, you can download it, 
And there's also a uh, an outline of it, a booklet of it that gives all the scripture verses that I use in, in that talk on the communion of saints. That's BibleChristianSociety.com. Thanks, Mark. We appreciate the phone call. Did you ever think when you were duplicating all those cassette tapes that you would one day say, uh, be, if you're old-fashioned like me and yeah. have a CD player? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Gannett in Raleigh, North Carolina, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Gannett, you're on with John Martinoni. Okay, thank you so much for taking my call. Um I listen to you guys all the time, and I just love, love listening to you. Um, I just want to ask, um, someone challenged me recently that I wasn't saved because I wasn't born again. Um, I'm Catholic by birth, um, so I believe, you know, I, I don't I don't know, like, I don't believe that you, I don't even know what it, it means to be born again, so I just wanted to ask the question. Okay. Excellent. Here, here's the thing. For the Protestant, most Protestants, not all, but for the ones that were talking to you saying you weren't saved because you weren't born again, what it means is you haven't accepted Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, which, number one, that's not up to them to judge whether or not you're saved. Okay? That's for God to judge whether or not you're saved. Number two, they have a mistaken understanding of what it means to be born again. So you could take them to John chapter 3. And Jesus here is talking to Nicodemus, one of the rulers of, of the Israelites. And he says, uh, this is John 3, verses 3 through 5. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, or many translations say born again. So that's where they get the phrase born again from. He cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, you have to be born again in order to get into heaven, is what Jesus is saying. What does it mean to be born again? Well, Nicodemus asked that very question. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus uh, he's like, what the heck are you talking about, Jesus? How, how, can, how can you be born again? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So the first time you're born, you're born into the flesh, okay? And Scripture tells us, particularly I'm thinking uh, John 6, the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit that gives life. So you have to be born again of the spirit in order to get into heaven. Well, being born again of the spirit is not just saying a sinner's prayer or accepting Jesus into your heart as your, your personal Lord and Savior. Jesus tells us what it is. You have to be born of water and the spirit. He's talking about being baptized baptism is being born again. If you are properly baptized, you are born again. If you look at all four accounts of Jesus' baptism in the Gospels, what do you have? You have Jesus with water for the baptism, and after he's baptized, the Spirit descends in the form of a dove. So water and uh, the Spirit is baptism. And some will say, no, no, water is the the placental fluids when you were born and then spirits, the spiritual rebirth. No, because if you look on in chapter 3, 
after Jesus is done explaining to Nicodemus about being born again, what does he do? Verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the land of Judea. There he remained with them and baptized. So baptism is the context for this whole discussion with Nicodemus on being born again of spirit and water, being born of spirit and the water, which is being born again. So you, as a Catholic, I'm assuming you've been properly baptized. You have indeed been born again, Gannett. And you can tell the other person, well, if you haven't been properly baptized, then you haven't been born again. Okay? Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for the phone call. We appreciate it. 833-288-EWTN. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Alejandro is in Houston, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. It's all about baptism today. Alejandro, you're on with John. Thank you, sir. Thank you for taking my call. I'm actually calling in regards to another question of baptism. So I'm a practicing Catholic, and I'm trying to grow in my theology of uh, Christ as a Catholic. And I had a discussion with a Protestant yesterday over uh, baptism, and we completely agreed on the whole uh, concept of baptism and being blessed in the, uh, the Holy Trinity. But where we disagreed was the age of baptism. So he believed that people who are uh, infants, they, they shouldn't be baptized uh, compared to people who are older, uh, those of those are the ones who should be baptized, and that's due to uh, consciousness and faith. And then he also goes on to uh, cite that there is no uh, there is no use of the word infant in the Bible getting baptized, at least. No, there's not, but it says in, in Acts in a couple places, entire households were baptized. For example, the jailer, um, when Paul and—, and uh, who was in jail with Paul? Uh, um, was it Barnabas? I can't remember. Anyway, um, Paul was in jail with one of his cohorts, and and earthquake. He gets the jail doors are open, and the jailer is like, "Oh my gosh, uh, this is I'm going to be punished severely for this." Paul says, "Don't worry," and the jailer comes to belief in God, and he says, "What must I do?" And Paul says, "Be baptized, you and your." And then it talks about him and his entire household being baptized well households were not just adults they were children they were infants now the jailer probably you know being on the lower rung of the economic scale he probably didn't have servants or slaves but there's other places where households were baptized and if you had uh, servants they were part of your household their children were part of your household if you had slaves they were part of your household as same with their children so whole households so the other thing is, is you ask a person, say, you know, what is the Old Testament precursor to baptism? Well, to, to, to coming into covenant with God. Well, it's, it's circumcision. You know? And uh, it, it tells us this, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says, um, let me get it here. Um, no, I'm sorry, Colossians 2, 11 and 12, it talks about uh, baptism. You know, we were baptized, we were circumcised with the circumcision of the heart. We were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, and you were buried with him in baptism. 
So right there in Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12, it makes the connection between circumcision and baptism. Then you go back to what, Genesis, what, 14, 15, somewhere, maybe 17. When they instituted circumcision, how old do you have to be to come into covenant with God through circumcision? Do you know, Alejandro, how old someone was when they were supposed to be circumcised? I believe eight days old. Eight days old. So they didn't have faith. They weren't able to do anything to, to show their belief in, in God Almighty. Yet through circumcision, they came into covenant with God. In the New Testament, baptism replaces circumcision. Again, as we just saw in, in Colossians uh, 2. And therefore, you know, why would you deny it to your children? And, and in fact, in Acts 2... What's it say? Uh, Repent, be baptized, every one of you. This is Pentecost, for the promise is to you and to your children. Children being baptized. So if you're in agreement on baptism, and through baptism one becomes a member of the body of Christ, one has its, their, their sins washed away, one received the Holy Spirit, why would you want that denied to your child? So, uh, Take all that, and, in, and again, I'm going to say my, my website, BibleChristianSociety.com, I've got a talk there called The Sacraments in the Bible, and it goes through all these verses and more that I just went through. And I've also got a talk called Infant Baptism and Original Sin. Check those out. They're free. And, uh, and then get back to your friend and, and have at it, okay? Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Next up is Rose in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Rose, you're on with John Martinoni. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Uh, my question is, is there a difference between the despair of emotional despair and um, spiritual despair? We were talking about it in our Bible study, and one person was saying they were the same. I see them as different when you look at Peter and Judas. So... That's my question. Well, you you gave a very good example. Um, Peter probably was despairing emotionally, psychologically, because of his betrayal, his his denial of Jesus, and um, yet he didn't necess- he didn't go out and hang himself, as did Judas. But uh, so. I guess you could come up with a, a distinction between the two. It would, it would just depend on how you define emotional despair versus how you define spiritual despair. If, if you look at it as emotional despair as I'm so upset with what I've done and you're focusing on, on your lack and, and how, you know, what a horrible person you've been and a horrible thing you've done versus spiritual despair where you've given up on on God being able to save you then yeah there there would be a difference uh, absolutely and and spiritual despair where you think my sin is so big or so horrible that not even God can forgive me when you get to that point then yes you're in deep deep trouble and you don't ever want to go there but uh, so, yeah, I, I would say I can see how 
someone would say there is a difference, as you did, but I can also see, again, depending on how they define it, that you could say they're the same. The thing is, is the difference between ultimate despair and just despairing of something you have done on a temporary basis is ultimate despair is you have given up on God and, and you've thought, I, God cannot forgive me for this. I want to give a big shout-out to our longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting, celebrating their 11th year uh, of carrying EWTN programming. They serve Oklahoma with 12 FM singles, signals in English and Spanish. Congratulations to Jeff Fennell and everybody at Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting from your friends here at EWTN. You're number one in St. Louis today. Back to St. Louis we go. Matt is a first-time caller listening on Covenant Radio. Matt, you're on with John Martinoni. Great. Thank you very much. And hi, guys. Hey, Matt. Uh, how you doing? Ah, uh, doing just fine. Well, we're going to figure out whether or not I'm certified to be crazy or not. My question is, does God let spirits? like a, a past family member or friend, come back and ask for prayers. And the reason I ask that is because probably for the last 30 years, I've had a recurring dream about a family member who is always in exactly the same you know, condition and position and everything. They ask, Matt, will you please pray for us? Or please pray for me. I need prayers. It's always the same message. Okay. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Did you fin- Were you finished? Yes. Okay. First thing I'm going to ask is, have you been praying for them? Every single day. All right. Awesome. And that's what I tell people. I said, look, uh, and, and I'll, I'll get to yours, the specifics of your question here in a moment, but everyone who has family, friends, relatives who are deceased no matter how holy of a person you believe that that person was you still need to be praying for the repose of their souls because we do not know a person's heart god and god alone so there's the possibility that that person did not go straight to heaven as you might thought they did or as somebody at the funeral said well we know they're in heaven now well, no, we don't, unless that person has been formally canonized by the Catholic Church. So I, I tell everybody, don't just as we're not allowed as Catholics to condemn people to hell, we are not on an individual basis allowed to canonize them into heaven. So pray for your dead friends, relatives, ancestors, family members, etc. Always pray for them. To answer your question, there are instances where saints and seers and such have said that the souls in purgatory have appeared to them and asked them for prayer and have described conditions in purgatory. And it's, it's rather scary. And, and there's books out there that you can get. I can't think of a title right offhand, but I, I know they're out there. If you do a, a search on a book on the souls in purgatory or, or something along those lines. But uh, so even those, though those are private visions, private revelations, and we're not required to believe in them as, as a doctrinal matter as Catholics, but uh, the church, you know, leaves open the possibility. So I would say, yes, it is certainly possible 
that uh, the souls in purgatory have appeared, are appearing, and will continue to appear to people and ask for prayer, and it may indeed be happening in your specific instance. Uh, but I would just say, and even if the dreams stop, I would still keep praying for that person and, and any other deceased family members, relatives, and friends that, that you know of, okay? Definitely. Yes, thank you. All right, thanks, Matt. We appreciate the phone call. Start your day off right. Uh, 5.15 a.m. Eastern Time every morning, Fire on Earth with Peter Herbeck. Uh, Monday through Friday, one of the most dynamic speakers out there today. Uh, good way to start your day with a nice little 15-minute program, Fire on Earth, Friday, Monday through Friday morning, 5.15 a.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Richard in Cincinnati, Ohio called earlier and couldn't hang on, and he's listening on Sacred Heart Radio wanting to know, what is papal infallibility? Is every papal statement dating back to Peter infallible? To answer the latter question first, no. Is every papal statement dating back to St. Peter infallible? No, absolutely not. Papal infallibility was dogmatically defined, and it, this doesn't mean this is when it was first introduced as a belief in the Gallic Church, but it was dogmatically defined, Vatican Council number 1, back in the 1800s. And what it is is that the Pope, when he teaches the entire Church as the head of the Church in the areas of faith and or morals— and he teaches something that this is to be believed by Catholics, then he is infallible in his teaching. In other words, he cannot teach an error to the entire church as the head of the church. You know, Jesus says in, in Matthew 16, when he's talking to Peter, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, and the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church. Well, if the head of the church, the earthly head of the church, because Jesus is the head of the church, but if the earthly head of the church, the Pope, is allowed to teach error to the entire church, then the gates of hell have indeed prevailed against the church. So Jesus would have been proven to be a liar. So it's a very narrow definition, and it's called a negative charism. The Pope doesn't necessarily, you know, he's not forced to teach what he should teach. He's just prevented from teaching error. And again, as the head of the church to the entire church, I often use the example, let's say uh, Pope Francis went uh, to a parish in Rome, and one Sunday morning he's teaching the adult uh, uh, catechism class at that parish, and there's 20 people there. And Pope Francis tells, or any pope, you know, says to the, the adult education class at that parish in Rome, you know, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. That, that's a, a fable. That's a fairy tale. Didn't really happen. Oh, my goodness. Does that mean papal infallibility doesn't exist? No, because he wasn't teaching that as something that the whole church had to believe. He wasn't even teaching it as what they had to believe. He was just expressing his opinion. And in that case, his opinion would have been a heresy, would have been heretical. And so, but infallibility doesn't imply because he's not teaching as the head of the church to the entire church on something that everyone has to believe. 
if he's teaching about uh, global warming or economics or politics or anything, and he says, hey, this is the way it is. As Catholics, we should take what he says under serious consideration, but then we can disagree with it because it's not in the areas of faith and morals. So again, head of the church speaking to the entire church on a matter of faith and morals that are to be believed by all Catholics, the Pope cannot teach error. That's what papal infallibility is all about. Uh, next up is Catherine, a first-time caller in Austin, Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Catherine, you're on with John Martinoni. Hi, how are you? Doing all right. How are you? Good, good. Um, so my question is, my son will be receiving his first communion in February, and he has some sensory issues, and so I wanted to know if it's okay to um, practice the Eucharist with him. Is there like something that's considered not blessed Eucharist that I could give him so that he understands what it would taste like, what it would feel like? Yes, you can get unconsecrated host. Uh, uh, your your parish priest should have them. If not, there should be some sort of uh, uh, supply store for the parishes where you could order them. So you can get the hosts that haven't been consecrated, and you can use those to, to as you say, practice uh, the reception of communion. And that, that, you know, again, especially in an instance, like you said, your child has sensory uh, issues. So no no issue with doing something like that whatsoever and go to your parish priest if he doesn't have some host he can let you have then he he should know where you can get them okay fantastic thank you so much and merry christmas same to you merry christmas Catherine. well i i believe we've done it wow Time flies when you're answering questions it does <laughs> yes it does <laughs> and where can they find more of what you do BibleChristianSociety.com BibleChristianSociety.com Got 27, 29 maybe talks on CD or MP3 download and, and loads of, of uh, newsletters with all sorts of apologetics and evangelization information. On behalf of our fill-in host, Mr. John Martinoni, our producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade. Until we get together then, God bless.